This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Black Agents of Asturias. Slender Man. That term Robin doesn't like. And Glenn Miller. When Bobby would yell for seconds on fish and thirds, his mother said his big mouth would give him brain fever like his cousin Larry Marsh, and how would he like that? And Bobby said just fine, and his mother sent him to his room without any fish at all. Thus begins the strangely familiar, yet disturbingly alien, illustrated tale, Where the Deep Ones Are. It's part of Atlas Games' mini-mythos series, which also includes the delightful parodies, Cliff Howard, The Big Red God. Good Night Azathoth, and the Antarctic Express. All of them written by yours truly. Right now, and for a limited time, Atlas is offering a buy-two, get-one-free bundle of mini-mythos goodness. Which makes delightfully subversive gifts for friends, relatives, and especially their children. Leap online, Mythos fans! Point your browsers to atlas-games.com slash Cthulhu4kids. That's Cthulhu, the number four, and the word kids. Or follow the link in the show notes. That seems wise. We stride barefoot across beautiful, cold tiles, and we uh, head on over to our uh, gaming table where we're using a new vinyl edition of a record by Lowe's Casal as our GMing screen. And uh, we've got uh, some delightful tapas laid out for us on, on the table. No, uh, no Doritos here, because we have a particularly Iberian uh, topic today as we look up, way up, at the benevolent face of... Patreon backer Alexander Perman, who has a question for us, or really mostly for Ken, that goes something <laughs> like, can you do the Kingdom of Asturias as a Knight's Black Agents spin-off? Of course, uh, Knight's Black Agents is Ken's uh, gumshoe game for Pelgrane Press about uh, modern-day uh, spies uh, fleeing from vampires who want to kill them and eventually turning it around on them and maybe killing a few vampires themselves. So we know that. Tell us about the Kingdom of Asturias, which uh, was established in 718 and closed up shop in 924. Okay, uh, the Kingdom of Asturias is founded, according to the Asturians, who I guess ought to know, by a Visigothic nobleman named Pelagius, or Pelayo in modern Spanish. And he beat the Muslims at the Battle of Covadonga and set up the first Christian kingdom in Spain, which is the beginning of the Reconquista. Every single thing I just said is questioned by historians. There may not have actually been a guy named Pelayo. There may not have been a Battle of Covadonga. They may not have beat the Umayyads. It might have just been a Berber rear column that sort of got into a scrap and decided to uh, screw this mountain pass. And it may or may not have been the beginning of the Reconquista. I think it's they probably... They don't call it the Dark Ages for nothing. And depending on how you count the Basques, they're not even the first Christian kingdom in Iberia. So... Really, what's going on here? But the Asturians do, uh, they continue the, uh, to war against the Omeyads until eventually the kingdom of Asturias basically becomes uh, the kingdom of Leon, 
when they, I think basically when they reconquer Leon and it's a better city than any that they've already had. But if you've heard of Castile and Leon, this is the Leon half and the sort of Eastern part of Asturias winds up mostly being part of Castile. So Asturias sort of falls apart and sort of shrinks up, but it winds up basically uh, turning into Castile and Leon. And then your Reconquista gets going in earnest. So how do we uh, begin to take this history and make it into something Knights Black Agency. What what are the core elements of a, a Knights Black Agents game that's going to make this specifically feel like that game instead of just a regular gumshoe game, whatever that is, set in this uh, Dark Ages Spanish kingdom? Well, I mean, the first thing you need is um, vampires. <laughs> so, fortunately, uh, Spain is rich in uh, vampire love. There is a, a vampire called the Guasha who is a very old vampire who uh, lives in the mountain. He has one tooth and he sucks out your blood. So it's one really high quality tooth. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, it, I suspect it's more like a mosquito proboscis than it is an actual tooth. And it can be a girl vampire or a boy vampire. Some people have tied it into the Guajona, which is a different kind of a Spanish vampire, but obviously it's, it's a cognate term. So the uh, Guajona and the Guacha both take their name from the Arabic. Uh, wash, which means beast. So what we have here, I suspect, is a system in which the Guashona or the Guash are the vampire paladins who have been sent out to go up against the uh, Arabs. And so what you have is a system because vampires fear crosses. The Astorian kings have to convert to Christianity, although a lot of them are sort of weird, creepy uh, pagans at the time. The Visigoths, at the, very, at the very least, are Aryan, if not straight-up pagan. Well, that, that's a pretty good argument for evangelicals, is we've, uh, we're the missionaries, and we've got the anti-vampire weapons you need. Right. And then, coincidentally, it's one of those things where, well, Guasha, if you want to survive, go south and eat up uh, Umiads. And so, you have sort of a Operation Edom Avant La Lettre, in which the Asturian Kings think that they can control the vampires and drive them into uh, Muslim territory to uh, predate, thus weakening the um, Umayyad Caliphate so that the Asturian knights can ride down and uh, take over their country. But, haha, of course, as always happens, you think you're manipulating the vampires. What are you doing? You're letting yourself be manipulated. So our heroes would be Asturian knights, your sort of El Cid, again, a little bit avant la lettre, who have discovered that, yes, the kings of Asturias are perhaps more infiltrated by the vampires than they wanted, but they can't go to the Umayyads for help because the Umayyads hate them. So the Umayyads would be the Soviets in this particular model. So you have sort of a Cold War, hot war situation in Spain, and you have to work all along that, what they call the Taifa, the broken district that's the border between Christian and Muslim Spain, where people are switching sides and switching allegiances, probably depending on how bad the vampire problem is. And so the um, uh, notion that, for example, King Fruela, who was uh, Fruela the Cruel, the king of Asturias in the 750s, <laughs> uh, killed a lot of people, uh, obviously vampire, and then, best of all, people still say they see him wandering around the mountains of Asturias. So... <laughs> You've got a definite situation. So now we know that we're setting it during the reign of Froila the first, Froila the cruel. So yeah. you're in the 750s AD, 760s AD. Right. And we know these sort of mosquito vampires, therefore, uh, the king is presumably not seen only at night. So that uh, pesky can only, uh, can't be out in the sunlight rule is probably lifted. So that right. Absolutely. implies that 
There are all sorts of, and obviously if you look at the king, you don't go, oh, look, he has only one tooth. Or <laughs> he has a proboscis and no teeth. So presumably these vampires actually have a full set of human teeth. And then when they need it, they, they shape shift, right? Yeah, the just proboscis the comes proboscis out of the back of their of, neck or something. I, I think it's cool if it sort of uh, kind of unravels from your gum line. And it just goes back and forth and sort of drops down and then, uh, you know, because that's a nice creepy transformation there, right? Like the, the growing the fangs, but you've got a big um, a sucker that comes out and, and grabs you. And so that gives you the opportunity then to have other members of the court uh, moving around in the daylight, uh, being perfectly human-like until they open their mouths and then their their gums start to unfurl and turn into a proboscis. So that gives you all sorts of cool spy opportunities where you're uh, not sure uh, who to trust and who might be uh, waiting to exsanguinate you. Yeah. And when uh, King Alfonso I of Asturias dies, uh, so it's not just Froil of the Cruel, the uh, nobleman heard angels singing a line from the book of Isaiah, which is to say, in the cutting off of my days, I shall go to the gates of the grave. I am deprived of my years. I shall not see the Lord in the land of the living. I shall behold man no more with the inhabitants of the world. So it's uh, it's bad news if the angels are saying you aren't going to see the Lord when you die, I think. So the, the vampire taint continues throughout the Asturian monarchy, I think. And so is there, uh, and what sort of Knights Black Agency sort of actions can our characters be taking? They're, uh, they're Asturian knights. The typical Knight Black Agents thing is the first mission seems like a regular mission, and then they learn too much. So perhaps they're on a, a raid, a covert raid into Muslim territory, and then the uh, suspiciously omnicompetent uh, NPC unfurls their gum line and uh, shoots out a proboscis and uh, drains their target of, of blood and then turns to them and... Uh, uh, are we going to give these guys uh, mesmeric powers? I think that they probably have uh, mesmeric powers. I think that's legitimate. It's. It, it, I think with this, uh, much like nice black agents can be read the vampires as part of this um, uh, unholy conspiracy of, of, of NGOs and, cons- and corporations and other inhuman actors that actually run the world. In this case, anything that is attributed to the monarchy should be attributed to the vampires. So yeah, they have, they have a, a magical touch. They can overawe you with a look or, or mesmerize you. They have uh preternatural command dominate abilities like your, like your Ventru in the, in the vampire books, all manner of possibilities. Speaking of vampire books, I recommend if you're playing this hunt down my book, the canine heresy, which is how you put vampires into a Christian context. And, they're sneaky ways to mess with the mass so that it isn't a proper mass. I think that you, like you say, you ride into Muslim territory and one of the NPCs is revealed as a guasha. And then you're like, oh my God, a guasha. And you kill it and you ride back. And suddenly the gates are of, of the town are barred to you because you've killed the important vampire that they were using. And now you're like, why would that happen? I'm a knight. I'm freeborn. And you begin to discover trouble. The way I might spin this uh, alternatively is the... Vampire does what he always does when you go out uh, raiding with this vampire to establish as part of the backstory that you're you're his bodyguard who go with him on the raids into uh, Muslim territory. And this time, for some reason, the mesmerism doesn't take. You know, the moon passes overhead, or you know, or there's some... like a or, or there's a genuine uh, Christian relic right that's left in the town. Yeah, you know, there you go. The, the Muslims hadn't uh, taken the the toe bone of Saint James out of the church. Uh, when they put it, made it a mosque or something. And so they, uh, the toe bone of St. James is revealed and boom, his, his power goes away. And it's like, uh Oh, that's not good. Yeah. So you witness the horrible predation and, uh, the, uh, the vampire 
uh, attempts to uh, erase your memory uh, fails, uh, and then you realize that, oh, wait, this has probably happened every single time. That's why I wake up with headaches, and oh, no. And then, you know, you don't even have to then have them kill off that vampire. You go back into the castle with them, and now you know this horrible thing, and you don't know who to go to, and do you attack the uh, leader who you now know to be a vampire right away, or do you do something sneaky? And so that gives you your kind of initial uh, reaction. And then, you know, as uh, then the choices you make determine how exactly you get blown and then how you have to uh, escape from this particular Spanish castle. There is also a uh, historical uh, series of epidemics in the area called the Duro or the desert of the Duero, which is a region between the Duero and the Cantabrian mountains that was depopulated, depending on who you believe by King Alfonso in an attempt to remove the uh, peasants who would otherwise keep Muslim armies alive or removing peasants because they were not bowing the neck to the King of Asturias or that they were removed by coincidental epidemics that just happened to strike at the front line of the Asturians everywhere they marched in the Duro Valley, which again, I look at that and I say, yeah, there's there's a, a phalanx of vampires that are moving out ahead of the army. And as you say, in between driving off Muslim garrisons, they're also feasting on the peasants in the area. And so you find this, this sort of secret vampire army and realizing that they're feeding on people. It's not the it's not the Muslim kingdom that's responsible for the deaths of all of these peasants. And you know that. And uh, so what do you have a big climax in mind for uh, Alexander to bend his series toward? Um, well, I think that this is where it's, it, you can have a, a sort of a, a, an El Cid moment where it's like, okay, knowing as I know that the kingdom of Asturias is polluted by vampires is my goal to go and purify it, to kill King Frulio the cruel and make a, a, a proper non vampire guy King, or is my goal to go into Muslim territory and turn my coat and become a Muslim and take over a, a city for them and just defend it against everybody, vampires and otherwise. And so you have that sort of decision making. I think the sort of standard Knights Black Asians would say, go in and, 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 um, uh, behead, uh, King Frulio the Cruel, you know, right there on, on the altar. But maybe you want to be playing with the question of there's this large, as far as you know, not immediately vampiric civilization of the South where they pay knights. So who can say? And the question of, do I defect? Uh, has my own side become so terrible that I defect, which is part of a lot of spy fiction and also kind of part of the nice black agents uh, mythos a little bit. It's like uh, eating halal on one side or being eaten on the other side. Mm, hmm. I like pork, but on the other hand, I like not having a proboscis. Yes. Drink all my blood. Uh, well, I think on that note, uh, I think we've laid out the outlines of a Kingdom of Asturias Night's Black Agent spinoff and can therefore move on to our next segment. Kids, want to plunge headlong into Lovecraftian mystery but lack a gaming group? Want to introduce a friend or loved one to the role-playing hobby? Gumshoe One-to-One has come to your rescue. Find this new system by some guy named Robin D. Laws. In the first Gumshoe One-to-One book, Cthulhu Confidential, combine the darkness of 30s hard-boiled detective fiction with the cosmic horror of Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos, complete with three dauntless investigators, each ready to play in seconds. Scholarly veteran Langston Wright by Chris Spivey, 
crusading journalist Vivian Sinclair by Ruth Tillman. And Robin's hard-boiled private eye Dex Raymond. Presenting three terrifying settings. Wartime Washington, D.C., a sleeping Goliath soon to awake. 1935 New York City, that roaring town and Egypt inside out. 1937 Los Angeles, its streets dark with something more than night. Includes three full-length thrilling scenarios. Capital Color, a mystery of meteoric impact. Fatal frequencies illumined by a light that cannot be seen. The Fathomless Sleep, a spiral into memory unspeakable. Also with... Tips and tricks for managing the doubled intensity of one-to-one play. Full support for creating your own one-to-one adventures. Guidance for online play. Being alone and terrified has never been so much fun. Not spider webs, not cobwebs, but worldwide webs, because here we are in the horror hut, but we are in an internet-connected iteration of the horror hut, not only because we're dealing with an internet phenomenon, but also because this is Tell Me More, in which many Patreon backers all wanted to know about something in Ken and Robin Consume Media, and specifically that something is the documentary Beware the Slender Man, directed by Irene Taylor Brodsky, which uh, you, Robin, watched and loved? Um, I, It's really solid. It's a recommendation, and it's, I think, a uh, for for me, for a documentary to hit the level of full recommendation, it has to be more than just information conveyed through the documentary format, but there has to be um, something cinematically interesting about it. And Brodsky latches onto this story of the Slender Man, particularly uh, through the uh, now famous case of the two uh, girls who uh, seriously, very badly stabbed uh, a friend of theirs, uh, and you probably remember the news story, which they uh, uh, sort of implied that they were doing this as a sacrifice to this fictional character of uh, Slender Man. And it's sort of, uh, if you just kind of absorb the details from that news story, you may think of it as just sort of a another creepy, gothy sign of uh, civilization uh, gone awry. Like a gothy version of Heavenly Creatures. Uh, yes. Now, it mostly tells the story of the aftermath of the stabbing and the lead-up to the stabbing through the families of the two girls who are charged with the crime and set to go on trial this year in adult court. And it's mostly from that perspective, but there's a bunch of other things that you have to examine in order to tell this story. And so I think the interesting thing as a piece of documentary film that Brodsky does is to sort of not just pick one through line but suggest through uh, documentary technique what a strangely layered story this is, where there's all of these different elements that are uh, not quite coalescing and never quite answering the metaphysical question of how could this happen. And one of these is just sort of the bucolic setting of this uh, Wisconsin suburb where the crime took place, uh, which is achieved through these uh, beautiful aerial, probably drone shots that sort of create a, a context for it. Uh, there's an examination of the Slender Man phenomenon itself, which is, I think, what we're going to talk about mostly in this segment. And then, of course, there's the, the true crime aspect of it. And as far as that goes, the thing that really struck me about this when watching it is just how incredibly young these girls were when they uh, committed this act of violence, because you kind of picture them as young gothy teens. They were children. They were pre- prepubescent. And if you uh, if you know your 12-year-olds, 
Uh, <laughs> some of them are turning into teenagers, and some of them are still kids. And these uh, two girls were still kids. And you're expecting some twisted Leopold and Loeb thing, because it is pretty clear that these two 12-year-olds wouldn't have done this without the other. But uh, it's also revealed uh, that uh, one of them is a suffering from schizophrenia. Her dad is a schizophrenic. And it looks like it was super early onset, like from age three. Her imaginary friends are real to her. So it is a bit of a shock when they wind up being put before adult court. Um, I'm not in charge of uh, the legal systems of uh, other states and other countries, but that was uh, uh, a bit of a surprise to me. Um, but anyway, I think we want to look at Slender Man as uh, also as a horror character and sort of an example of kind of a modern crowdsourced combination of iconic horror character and also an urban legend that people are kind of willing themselves into believing. So were you aware of Slenderman before this incident? Oh yeah. There's a website called Creepypasta, which I don't go on because I don't want to be accidentally mulcting other people's creations. But there's a, there's a website called Creepypasta where people make up creepy things and they sort of compete in that weird internet way to be as creepy as you possibly can. And a guy named Eric Knudsen created Slenderman as the creepiest thing you can possibly imagine. And he came up with the little pictures and came up with sort of the mythology of Slenderman that he, that he shows up in people's photographs and is somehow involved with abducting children and is everything that we are creepily uh, suspicious of in this internet era. And then that sort of blew up. And so I'd known about Slenderman before because he was, you know, I, I keep track of monsters and he was one of the newest ones, but I wasn't like, you know, a thousand percent into Slenderman, first of all, because again, it's someone else's monster and it's not mine to, you know, go rip off. Right. It's one thing if you are uh, working on the fan fiction level yeah. on something that it it's uh, and like Lovecraft, who is one of the many influences behind Slenderman, the IP situation around uh, Slenderman has sort of become fuzzy, but still belongs to Eric Knudsen. And yeah. there's, he's sold uh, media rights to another uh, company, which, which safeguards them. Uh, but people nonetheless, uh, as they would with, with other fan production, continue to make their own Slenderman videos where he seems to be showing up. Or, um, and of course, the conceit of this is a character who shows up in seemingly innocuous photographs is perfect for this mode of transmission because it's something you can do with Photoshop or or GIMP even. And so it raises a question of, is it folklore if you're all doing it intentionally as part of fiction? And so that that's one of the fascinating issues that it raises. And also the character himself has sort of bent uh, for a lot of people toward the idea that he has a sort of duality of being a destroyer but also a protector. So he's the one who is uh, drawing, like the like the Pied Piper, drawing misunderstood uh, children uh, toward him. And, of course, uh, that got a little too real. Yeah. Um, and, and this is a, a nightmare, I think, that anybody has who produces horror fiction is the fear that uh, someone who is uh, uh, suffering... Uh, not only from mental illness, but the extremely you know rare instance where that turns into violence because people can fixate on anything. And in fact, yeah. the, the one of the girls, the the girl in this case who is schizophrenic, also 
thinks she talks to Voldemort and yeah. a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle character. And so if there had never been Slenderman, maybe we'd be reading about the Voldemort stabbing. In yes, and then J.K. Rowling would be having the, the would, long would night of the soul trouble. instead of the people who uh, helped make Slenderman. So I'm, I'm, I'm super... You know, I am a, a big fan of Eric Knudsen. I think that he did a great job creating a, a modern mythological character, but I have not been a giant Slendermanologist or Slenderman a file, but I do enjoy when Slenderman just sort of shows up, I think like he's supposed to in the background of something I'm already paying attention to. And then, you know, like you say, this, this stabbing incident comes out and it's a little less fun to play with Slenderman. Thank God no one has had a Cthulhu serial killing. Although I'm sure we were merely waiting. And, and thank God that the victim in this case was, was uh, alive. seriously hurt, but not killed. She's, she's, I, I would imagine anyone going through that, that's going to affect you for the rest of your life. Your two, you know, best childhood friends turn around and stab you, but that's better than the alternative. Yeah, no, it is. So yeah, I, I, I sort of, um, look at the Slender Man, not as himself, but as an example of how to make a good, scary folk myth thing. And, you know, I, I just, you know, I, you look at the fact that he, he endangers children. He's connected to children. That's a giant thing for, you know, modern society from helicopter parenting. I don't know if you've seen the maps where they had maps of how the area in my neighborhood where my grandfather got to play, then the area my dad got to play, then the area I got to play. Now the area I allow my kids to play yeah. and the area just shrinks down to nothing. And so this notion of, you know, something that can reach through the internet in a way, or through our social media, through pictures, through the things that we are trying to curate to keep this uh, wall against the universe that can sneak through that and, and attack the kids. That's a terrific uh, mythic um, uh, knot that Knudsen has, has, uh, has tied there. And I'm, I'm a huge fan of what he did with the, with the creature. But again, I would rather go look at the Mothman, which is sort of, it's everybody's property. Anyone can do something with the Mothman. Um, or vampires or Dracula, who is a public domain or Cthulhu, then go step on Eric Knudsen's yard. Right. And, and it's interesting the way that he, uh, the, the character kind of also, there's a lot of, uh, Freddy Krueger DNA in there. Yeah. And the tall man from Phantasm, obviously, is yeah. another super classic. But Freddy is just sort of a, a, uh, he punishes you for being a teenager and, and is really just trying to, he kills you in order to uh, hurt your parents. Right. Whereas the, I think the really resonant thing here, uh, and apart from the sort of mystery of the look of the character who just sort of shows up, and if you acknowledge him, uh, he preys on you, and therefore, uh, you know, that draws him closer to you. And the uh, again, the sort of idea that if you're a misunderstood kind of gothy kid, is he trying to murder you, or is he going to take you to his magical castle, which is where uh, the, at least one of the girls involved in the, the case uh, thought that they were going to walk all the way across the state uh, to a state park, and there they would be uh, delivered uh, into uh, this, this sort of perfect uh, utopia. So it, people who are affected by this, I think, sharpened uh, the myth even more and made it into something, you know, even psychologically uh, deeper, but also, of course, uh, more uh, uh, wounding. So I guess, uh, you know, if you wanted to deal with this, at all. I mean, it certainly very much in fits the themes of the Esoterrorists, right? That this right, is something yeah. that starts out as a weird, disturbing art event and then manifests in the world. Right. Uh, so very much a, a created thing that turns out to draw itself into existence by the act of creation. Yeah. He's, he's a tulpa basically. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and again, tulpa is something that you can play with without necessarily going right on that. And he has that same sort of 
quality that uh, I think sort of the best folklore has, that he's totally familiar. You instantly know what he is, but you know nothing about him, really. And you can you can say the same things about about fairies. You can't even say that about vampires in a in a way. So Slenderman in a way is is stronger than that. He's like near Lothotep. You you know what he is, but you have no idea what he's any specifics of it. And so you can uh, use that in the story or in uh, the game environment to create the sort of uh, effect that you want. Yeah, vampires have rules, but Slenderman the only rule is don't know about him. Oh, yep. If you've already formed the thought, don't know about Slenderman, you know about Slenderman. That's uh, brilliantly uh, horrific. Uh, So I guess that's our uh, uh, slim take on Slenderman, and we can uh, move on to our next segment. when demons lodge in your memories. Well, there are seven different sorts of demons, each of which has a different mnemonic effect. That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 2 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. RunePunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This episode also brought to you by Patreon backers exactly like... Michael Bowman. Christopher Gunning. Jason Blaylock. Brian Thomas. And Neil Kaplan. The rising action, the overlapping dialogue, and the thunder of an approaching climax tell us we have once more entered the stark yet beautiful confines of the narrative hut. Here in the narrative hut, we look at the substructure, the skeleton of writing, as opposed to the goodness of writing good. Or even, uh, it could even be like the, the criticism hut, the, 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 criticism the Northrop hut. Fry wing. The Northrop uh, Fry memorial wing, wing podcast or other celebratory hut. wing, a cathedral, if it were, St. Northrop's. Yeah. But this time I want to talk about sort of uh, folk criticism. Folk criticism. Criticism of folk. Uh, Criticism by folk. By folk. Specifically, you don't like the term plot immunity. Tell us, why don't you? Because you would think that you would, um, you know, you would not like the concept as opposed to the term, the notion that someone has to survive because the book is about them or the movie is about them. And so therefore... They do things that ordinarily people would die from or maybe not do. But since the book's about them, they just trundle along to the end of the chapter. You'd think that it would be a good thing to have a term for that annoying thing that shows up a great deal. But you don't like it. What's going on? Right. Well, first of all, I, I don't agree that it's an annoying thing that protagonists generally make it all the way through a narrative. And 
I think plot immunity is an example of a cr critical term that has grown up in the geek community uh, as opposed to in, in academia. That I oh, think, yes. God forbid academics um, come up with a dumb term that means nothing. Oh, they, they do that all the time, too. This yeah. is not my... It's, it's not a lack of provenance. Yes. But I think the reason that this is trouble for me is that it kind of arises out of the geekly desire to condescend to the fictional forms and formats that they love. That you have to demonstrate that you're too clever for Batman, even as you continue to consume uh, metric oodles of Batman. Mm. And so uh, the observation that, oh, Batman has plot immunity. That's why he never gets killed. Well, Batman, it, it's not like fiction occurs in a simulated game universe, but there's a GM using GM fiat to keep Batman alive. It is, this is a form of fiction which has a set of forms and conceits and conventions. And conventions uh, respond to the desires of the audience to, A, have a comfortable set of expectations, which you can either work within or interestingly subvert, and that you want certain things to happen and that you don't. So to stay with the Batman analogy, you would be very disappointed if Batman just randomly died from a thing that people randomly die from in the middle of a Batman adventure. Right, like he's going down the, down, down the uh, alleyway beating up criminals and a criminal who is taking a leak comes around and shoots him in the back. Yes. Or, you know, or he, uh, you know, hits a, a piece of uh, a fire escape that has come loose and it lodges on him and it snaps his spine. Uh, if you want Batman's spine to be snapped, which I think is something that happened in, in Batman, it's supposed to be meaningful that you do not want. Bane has uh, to do it. Bane has to do it. It's not a completely. Characters in fiction do not operate in a random universe that is then interfered with by the author in order to prevent it from being random. The whole thing is set up to be uh, coherent. And and you would, uh, likewise, you would be very disappointed if uh, Batman did the thing that clever people always say Batman should do is, well, why doesn't he just kill the Joker? Well, if Batman killed the Joker, there wouldn't be any more comics in which Batman met the Joker. You have to eventually you know, reveal that to, you know, the Joker got away as usual. So, you know, if you want to never have Batman comics again, yeah. <laughs> Batman can kill the Joker in one issue and the Penguin in the next one, and then he can murder the Riddler, and he'd probably be sad while he murdered Catwoman. And then so suddenly he becomes the Bat Punisher. Yes, and, and then uh, no, more, uh, no more Batman, right? There's a reason why the Punisher... Uh, and I think I'm digressing from my original point here. Is, <laughs> oh, well, yeah, like that wasn't going to happen when you said Batman. <laughs> right. Um, there's, you know, there's a reason that the, the Punisher doesn't have iconic villains because yeah. that's the, the whole because, point. <laughs> except Bulletproof Boy. He's he's super iconic. He, the Punisher can't kill him because he's bulletproof. I made him up. He doesn't exist. I, I kind of, I, I wasn't totally sure there, but. Uh, yeah, he never can tell. Yeah. So I, I, I think ultimately that the reason this annoys me is that it looks at fiction as if it's trying to do something that it's uh, never trying to do and that you wouldn't like if it did. You would have bigger complaints than uh, than that. But it, it's a, a critique that allows you to be superior to the thing that you really love. And if you want things that are extremely realistic, uh, you're not going to seek out uh, action genres or the superhero genre. Uh, you know, you should, you know, go read Philip Roth novels in which, right. you know, there's, there's lots of genres in which people can randomly die for no reason and you have no guarantee. Well, even then, I mean, Philip Roth protagonists don't die halfway through the novel. No, they don't. You wish they would, but they don't. <laughs> 
<laughs> yes. like, maybe if you could go fight crime in an alley, that would really help, protagonist. Oh, no. Too- right. Oh, we died. Who saw that coming? Right. But you know in a work of realistic fiction that if someone is mugged, yeah. they could die. But yeah. if Batman is mugged, we know what's going to happen, and it's not because Batman has plot immunity. Are there other similar sort of uh, geek critical terms that uh, uh, vex you, Ken? Well, I mean, I'm going to stay on plot immunity a little bit because there are cases where it's not a situation of where, well... I knowingly picked up a Batman book. I know Batman will make it through the book and he's not going to be, you know, hit on the head by falling concrete or whatever. That's legitimate. But there are other books where I pick up a book and it's a spy novel. It's not a series character. It's not James Bond. It's just a spy novel or a thriller. And the guy's going through his thing and something bad happens and he probably should have died or he certainly should have suffered some consequence that he doesn't. You know, he, he tells off his boss and still gets to use the resources of the agency, of course, is the classic one. And at, 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 with every individual book, I mean, and every individual character, your your uh, suspension of disbelief suspends differently. You would put up with something from Batman that you would not put up with from a uh, a book that was presenting itself as true crime or was about a less cool hero than Batman who has written less uh, adeptly, you would not put up with something from a lesser writer with a lesser character than you put up with from James Bond, because you would say, seriously, why doesn't someone just shoot him instead of put him in the death trap? And that's down to uh, writing. And I think it is on the writer, on the creator of the narrative to provide a reason, if only one you can believe, you know, cling to in the moment for why, in fact, he didn't get shot because he needs to be um, uh, exploited in front of the, uh, you know, uh, parade at Red Square because uh, Mr. Big is busy doing something else and figures his sharks will take care of him as they have taken care of 50 other people. And so there's you can provide reasons in the story why Batman or James Bond or your uh, nameless, less good narrator or hero does not die. But if you just say he didn't die because he's the main character and we all knew it was the main character and come on, let's get to the fun part. I feel like you've you, if, you, if you're not writing Batman, you haven't really earned it, right? right. But we have better terms to describe well, that. What's, what's the better term for that all-too-real sin? And maybe we can convince uh, people all over the internet to use it instead of plot abuse. If you're looking at a specific instance where the reality level that is established in the work, mm-hmm. that you fail to believe it, uh, you can uh, look at that incident as a contrivance, right? That if you know, you've set up a world where realistically the spy is not supposed to get thrown into a, a death trap, but then they do. You've broken verisimilitude. And if you don't necessarily break your uh, reality level, but nonetheless the uh, plot turn isn't properly supported by logic, that's a contrivance. And so in in neither of those cases is the term plot immunity more useful or uh, illuminating uh, than these basic classic uh, writing terms. You can also say it, it breaks my suspension of disbelief, but some people's suspension of disbelief is tougher, is violated by the use of conceits that most people accept. Right. So there are people yeah. who can't watch Star Trek uh, once they establish that the, uh, in one episode, that the Klingon homeworld is very far away from Earth. And then in another later episode, they just hand wave that away because they need Klingons to get to Earth faster. And that uh, is a matter of of individual taste, and that gets into a a question of of canon. But I think when we're just talking about reality level, the sorts of things that you expect to happen in a 
Doctor Who novel or television episode versus in a John Le Carré novel, as long as you're consistent to your reality level, uh, you are not giving the character in a more heightened adventure world plot immunity. So have we gotten to a, a full how to make a sandwich uh, amount of rant here? I, I think um, uh, I, I think that you have established why you don't like the concept of plot immunity. Is there something specific about the term that you don't like, or is it just that uh, it sounds snarky? I, I think because it, assuming that there is a reality level that is supposed to be built into the story that is not built into the story. So you'd prefer reality immunity? Um, well, all they're saying is this happens in a heightened reality. Well, of course yeah. it does. It's Batman. And yeah, Batman right. in a non-heightened reality is Batman gets killed. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, my specific response to people who criticize Batman is don't criticize Batman. But, you know, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. I, I guess the, the, the real question is to what extent is the onus on the reader and to what extent is the onus on the creator to establish the level of reality going in such that when you pick up the book or you look at the first chapter, you don't say, Oh, this will be, you know, uh, this is this is a death trappy book, not a shoot you in the head and leave you to rot book. Um, I, I think you, in general, you need to uh, establish that as quickly as you can. So that's why you know why you might have a kind of a cold open where uh, Indy runs away from the rock, sliding down the the death trap thing. That tells you everything you need to know about the universe in which that uh, operates. Whereas yeah. if you've you know an opening scene where you're following a character down a, a rain-swept uh, street, and a car drives up, and then uh, there's a muzzle flash and a silencer, and that character uh, horribly dies. There's the possibility that there's, uh, you know, another character who operates uh, as, you know, the hero who is sort of above that sort of thing. But in general, that signals uh, the reality level uh, that you're uh, operating at. There is a an interesting Hong Kong film from last year called Line Walker that intentionally plays with that idea and it sort of switches which action genre it's in every 20 minutes. So the initial car chase sets up a very forgiving universe of sort of Jackie Chan style comedy stunts and and it moves through a bunch of from the espionage genre and every time it switches genres it gets more and more deadly and horrible until oh, that's cool. it winds up uh, with a heroic bloodshed ending. And sort so of like the reverse of the last action hero. Uh, yeah, and it takes you... And and, be, and I think it's uh, cooler because it gets progressively darker, right? If you yeah. started out with heroic bloodshed and wound up with Jackie Chan, it, unless you had that sort of meta conceit of last ac action hero, yeah. um, you would then feel that your uh, initial expectations have been violated, whereas this way, you know that your initial expectations uh, have been violated, but it was part of the gap. Right. That that was the that was the setup. While we're on the topic of just dropping movies in, I always think about the movie To Live and Die in LA as the great example of plot immunity used for good. Where the the movie starts out and you're following William Peterson and the very opening thing is them taking down a terrorist so you know that you're in a big action movie and then he goes after and it's all really brightly colored and it's a, a Friedkin movie. And so there's all kinds of great stuff going on. And then about halfway through the movie, spoilers, uh, William Peterson dies. And suddenly the movie becomes not more realistic, 
but the stakes just got raised. It's like suddenly you're, you realized, oh, I'm, I'm in a real poker game and someone just went all in and there was a lot of money on the table. Oh crap. I'm only holding jacks. And so you, you have a real moment in the movie where it's not so much that the reality level shifts, but the reality level sort of goes around a corner. Maybe. Yes. I'm not sure exactly what happens, but that's, that's one of my, my classic examples of, you know, you can do lots of great thriller things without needing plot immunity, I guess is my point to the extent I have one. Yeah. It's one of those great disjunctive narratives. Uh, Psycho, of course, is the, the iconic example where right. the uh, character who you thought was a protagonist is not. <laughs> and just, you right. know, you have the rug yanked out from under you and it turns out that you're um, not in the movie that you were uh, prepared to be that in you at thought all. thought you were in. Yeah. Um, and that only works if the vast majority of stories uh, work conventionally. And then, you know, suddenly this convention that you thought you thought you were safe uh, but nope, uh, that's that's not what's going on. Uh, well, I think we've now uh, traveled far from the realm of, of plot immunity. So yes. now in the Ken and Robin recommend things they like section yes. of this hut, similar to many huts. And what this podcast doesn't have is uh, exciting commercial message immunity. So I'll have one of those and then we'll be back for our final segment. The skies are dim always since the maker died. Time to weave a tale, my friends. A tale of good-hearted puppets in a bad-hearted world. In John Scott Tyne's puppet land, you rise up against the savagery of Punch, the maker-killer. You battle his army of nutcrackers and his terrible boys, sewn from the flesh of the maker of all puppets. The gorgeous new hardback edition ships to a store shelf near you in December. Featuring full-color paintings by Samuel Araya. And tons of ready-to-play tales by contributors such as... Kenneth Height. Aaron Dembo. And Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Are you ready to play? Because Punch and his boys are ready. Ready for you! The whirring of time gears and the clacking of chronotons tell us that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine, which, of course, is the vehicle that Time Incorporated uses to send our not-so-humble correspondent back into time to bend, fold, spindle, and, yes, sometimes even mutilate it. And uh, this time, once again, Time Incorporated has been assigned a task, or at least an, a, a uh, question to explore, by uh, a Patreon backer, in this case... Our uh, podcast pal, Bruce Miller, and he says, Glenn Miller, no relation, died in mysterious circumstances during the war. What was Ken preventing? Or can he be saved? Can he be saved? I, I know that my uh, narrative feelings are, are more for a, uh, a story in which uh, Glenn Miller is, is either saved or because he's miss missing in action, maybe he's somewhere else now or maybe he went somewhere else. So Ken... For those for the younger are, listeners, uh, yeah, yeah. For those who are are not uh, elderly in yes. their music taste, uh, Glenn Miller was uh, a band leader, a big uh, band leader from the swing era, from the swing era, the thirties and forties. He was the uh, smoothest, and he would have been the whitest band leader, except that there was a band leader called Paul Whiteman. <laughs> so it's just too poetic. But even then, his first name was Alton, so he's still pretty white. Yeah. yeah. And so Glenn Miller was probably the, he had this sort of smoothest sound, the, uh, 
uh, the lushest of the big band uh, sound. Yeah, if, if you've heard his version of uh, In the Mood or Moonlight Serenade, you've heard the sort of smoothness of uh, the Glenn Miller uh, swing sound. Right, um, so it he, doesn't course, have that, the raucous quality of Count Basie or the sort of uh, kind of classical ambition of, of Duke Ellington. Right. Uh, but he was uh, America's musical sweetheart, as it were. As it were. But he, unlike uh, a lot of other celebrities, wanted to fight in World War II, and so he enlisted in the Air Force. And this takes us to, to the fatal night, or was it fatal, of December 15th, 1944. What were the circumstances of Glenn Miller's plane going missing. Okay, Glenn Miller, when Glenn Miller volunteers for military service at age 38, he does not wind up a naval corpsman somewhere. He is put in charge of the Armed Forces Band, or specifically the Army Air Force Band. And he he becomes a captain and then a major and plays uh, music for servicemen. Basically, he's sort of like a uniformed USO guy, except he's giving up his salary all the time to stay a military man, which is crazy, but there you go. Good for you, Glenn Miller. And he goes around uh, performing for various uh, U.S. units, uh, just like a USO tour. Um, and it is in 1944 that he is flying from uh, Clapham to uh, Paris to uh, move the band across as the United States Army is now mostly in Europe and charging into Germany. And he gets into the uh, UC-64 Norseman, uh, takes off from Clapham, and vanishes over the English Channel on December 15th, 1944. And there's been a million different theories as to what happened. Was he hit by a bomb that uh, that a bomber coming back from Germany was jettisoning over the English Channel? Well, no, because this was not his first rodeo. He wasn't flying in the returning bomb pattern. Um, did he have a carburetor problem because it was cold and his, and the Norseman has sort of a hinky carburetor? Maybe. Um, did they just fly into a cloud, you know, and get turned around and fall into the English channel? Who can say? Well, I can say. And what happened was their carburetor froze over and they fell into the English channel. Now I did not do this. I do not kill everyone who dies in history. I do not murder everyone who vanishes mysteriously in history, but I do keep an eye out. And when you got someone like Glenn Miller, I thought, well, let's just fix his carburetor, right? Let's let him land in Paris. What can it do? What harm could happen if you let Glenn Miller land in Paris? Well, it turns out you sidetracked the career of Henry Mancini because Henry Mancini gets his break with Henry Miller's rival and successor, Tex Beneke. Tex Beneke is the guy. Now, now if it's Henry Miller, it's quite a different timeline. Right. Yes. Uh, Glenn Miller. Glenn Miller. Yes. Henry Miller's band. That's a whole different look. Yeah. Um, frankly, I, I'm going to make a note right now. Um, anyway, so, uh, Tex Beneke takes over the Glenn, what they call the Glenn Miller ghost band, which is not actually a band made up of ghosts. Everyone stopped coming up with great ideas. Yes. If, if you were a big band in the thirties and forties, you probably still exist. Yeah. You, you know, the Glenn Miller band still, uh, tours, the Basie band still tours. Yeah. The, um, there, there's an official Glenn Miller sanctioned orchestra now, uh, run by a guy named Nick Hilscher. So there you go. Look, uh, ask for it by name, but Tex Beneke ran the first Glenn Miller ghost band and it was the, uh, the Tex Beneke band. Beneke had already wanted to break away from Miller's orchestra and start his own band. And he was sort of handed this on a, on a platter and it became rapidly acrimonious between, um, himself and, and the Glenn Miller estate because he quite obviously did not want to record forever as the Glenn Miller band. He wanted it to be the Tex Beneke orchestra. And so they split up. 
But the point being that Tex Beneke gave the big break to Henry Mancini, which Henry Mancini would not have gotten. It transpires in a world where Glenn Miller keeps on keeping on. So in order to make sure that the wonderful and talented Henry Mancini continues, it was necessary. Uh, Henry Mancini, of course, the uh, uh, best known for his film scores, film uh, scores. the Pink Panther theme, uh, the uh, shot in the dark, uh, Hatari, uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's, uh, Touch of Evil is, uh, is possibly one of his best theme songs, although a theme that Orson Welles did not want in Touch of Evil and was taken out in the pseudo-director's cut. Or- Orson Welles had, had perhaps had um, uh, his experience of being overshadowed by the theme song already in The Third Man. <laughs> and, and he worked with Vernon Herman, so... Uh, right, yeah. And, and he liked Herman, right? Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so the, so the notion is that in order to make sure that Henry Mancini's career moves forward, we all have those lovely film scores, and believe you me... Uh, both Robin and I will tell you that a good film score is well worth changing history for. Uh, you just sort of daintily move Glenn Miller into a lovely future orchestra where he and a lot of other vanished people can hang out and play sweet swing combo sounds uh, for the good people of the 26th century. And maybe if you're all very good, uh, you'll live that long and get to hear the Glenn Miller Futurological Orchestra uh, laying down Pennsylvania six nine thousand, which is uh, the the you know four hundred years later. Right, the record he did with Hendrix is quite surprising. It is good. It is good. Um, uh, and the unplugged stuff he did with Kurt Cobain, that's nice. And so, uh, and why the twenty sixth century? What what crisis did you avert by uh, getting all of the uh, crisis of an absence of smooth jazz in the twenty sixth century? Uh, now let's let's big band jazz. Big band jazz. Smooth jazz. I think is an alien threat, isn't it? Uh, yeah, smooth jazz. Is, uh, you're, you're, you're absolutely I, I, right. I hate to be the, the stickler as, as the terminology sound, here, but we know someone else will. big band jazz. Yes. Right. No, smooth jazz, the Kenny G's and such. Yes, that's a whole different story. That gets into a whole different bunch of timelines that I, I'm not cleared for at the moment. Uh, but yes, the, 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 the dentist's office. Here's the thing. If the only time you've ever heard that music is in a dentist's office, there's a reason for that. That's all I can say. <laughs> But anyway, uh, the larger point is that uh, not everyone who vanishes stays vanished, and uh, that Amelia Earhart turns out to be a dab hand at the sousaphone. Uh, well, that's good, um, because uh, recently I think you left behind evidence that she uh, spent years as a castaway, which uh, would be uh, depressing, but obviously you were creating a, a cover story. Was there another broader reason for that cover story? Well, there's someone else who I figured didn't necessarily deserve to die, but I, you know, I put him on an island and it turns out, hey, look at that. I had right. one. So it, it's sad for us to, to think that she died on an island until now. Listeners to this podcast, it's really a bonus for Patreon backers. Right, to, exactly. To know, this, right? To know that uh, Amelia Earhart is out there wailing away on the sousaphone. Right. Uh, so, are there any other uh, notable people that you want to disclaim responsibility for killing? Everybody, the only people. Look, if I if they if they uh, wouldn't countersign killing Lenin, Stalin, and Trotsky, right? I, the number of people I get to kill is minuscule. It's very very small. There's so much paperwork you would not believe it. So, statistically, statistically the number of people you've killed I've is zero. Barely killed anybody. Right. If you look at the billions of people who've lived, like the 21 billion people who've lived and died over all of time. I've barely killed any of them. Right. And how many people have you unkilled after Tara Reid killed them? A lot. A whole lot. Tens of thousands. There's a whole alternate history that uh, goes on with the unfilmed sequel, uh, Josie and the Pussycats in Space. You know, it, it doesn't end well. Let's just put it that way. Although it's a good movie and has a great Henry Mancini soundtrack. Right. 
Uh, well, I, I can think of no other way to drag out this segment. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. It seems like you, it seems like you found a whole new barrel to scrape the bottom of, Robin. Yeah. Well, uh, I think that we can all use the, uh, the extra time in our lives that would have been, uh, taken up to listening to more of our foolishness, uh, can be devoted to, uh, listening to some Glenn Miller. Yeah. There you go. And, yeah. uh, and if you're really good, uh, maybe we can come up with that, uh, would, would there be like a big time echo if we released the the Hendrix uh, Miller uh, project? Or well, um, I, we were going to, but then Bowie's like, "No, I want to redo the production." So you know, you know Bowie, right? Well, it, it'll uh, because it's Bowie, it'll drop mysteriously someday, possibly on his birthday. Exactly, so we all have that to look forward to. Exactly. Okay, well, it's it's time for us to uh, head on uh, back to the 26th century, and I believe we have uh, front row seats for uh, uh, Duke Ellington. And, uh, oh, let's say Bobby Darren. Let's say Bobby Darren with uh, Mozart on rhythm guitar. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Astfageln. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Join such moonlight serenaders as Gwendolyn Schmidt, Raphael Papst, Joshua Brumley, Morgan Ellis, and Neil Dalton. Snag Ken and Robin apparel and other erudite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>